All right, we're going on with our study in Jeremiah. We're hopefully going to get through two chapters this evening, chapter 21 and 22. Of course, Jeremiah was a prophet of God and a patriot of Judah. And God had called him to go and preach repentance to the Jews and warn them of coming judgment. And as a consequence, they accused him of being a traitor as he was telling them they were going to fall at the hands of uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. And eventually, as the ministry went, he said, just submit. And they uh, accused him of being a traitor. So he was hated by literally everyone. We will go through some of this, I'm sure, later on. But just remember, three conquests and three contemporary major prophets, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel, all lived largely at the same time. Jeremiah was the senior of the three, and of course they ministered in different areas. I said three conquests, because originally Judah was subjugated in 606, where they basically lost their autonomy and uh, were under the control of Egypt and Babylon. And then in 597, after their king Jehoiakim had ceased to pay tribute to uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, They were brought back under control with the second siege, but this time they surrendered just like the first without incident and without mass destruction and death. And then after their third king, Zedekiah, was convinced to also rebel and cease paying tribute, trying to develop an alignment with Egypt as opposed to paying tribute to Babylon. Uh, Once again, uh, Babylon came down to bring them under control after a period of total of 29 years from beginning to end. But this time it was with uh, an 18-month siege, great destruction, uh, starvation, pestilence, and everything. And the city was literally leveled. And, of course, the temple uh, burned as well. Now, again, uh, Jeremiah was called to minister in a very thankless, what we would consider fruitless ministry. There wasn't a great revival like there was in Nineveh. Uh, Largely, he was hated by everyone, including his own family. But when you read chapter 1, you recognize that God raised up Jeremiah just to do what he did. And he accomplished everything that God had called him to do. However, for the first, what, 15, 16, 17 years of his ministry, it was actually during the reign of Josiah. As I've said, practically every week we would look back uh, fondly and say that would be like being called to minister during the Reagan years. You would think, well, that was a good era of time for the country. Uh, And it was from the political leadership. However, the hearts of the people, as we have learned, were still uh, steeped in idolatry. After Josiah's death, what, of course, was key, Uh, After Josiah's repentance uh, and and, and truly humble heart, he asked uh, the prophetess Huldah if God would spare judgment on Judah and was told that no, it's too late because of all the disobedience, in particular the wickedness of King Manasseh, as you can see up there, two spots above Josiah, uh, that they were going to be judged. However, because of Josiah's tender heart, it wasn't going to happen while he was alive. So his death was significant as far as God's prophetic timetable with dealing with Judah. After his death, Jehoahaz reigned for a short period, then Jehoiakim for a lengthy period, Jehoiachin for a very short period, Zedekiah for a lengthy period, and of course you see here a total of five kings uh, that reigned for anywhere from three months to, what, about 17 years for the remaining part of Josiah's reign, all during the ministry of Jeremiah. Uh, Again, remember that Jeremiah is not in chronological order, but just like these two chapters tonight, although they are some 10 years apart between chapter 21 and chapter 22, many of the chapters are grouped topically, and both of these chapters are dealing with judgments pronounced upon the kings of Israel. So tonight we are going to deal with, in fact, some of these chapters, we're not sure when exactly or specifically they take place. However, at other times, like tonight, we do know. We do know because the chapter identifies tonight, chapter 21, takes place during the reign of Zedekiah, as you can see where the arrow is there, shortly before the city is finally destroyed. Actually, this chapter 21 probably takes place within the last 18 months before the destruction. And then chapter 22, we're going to find, takes place right towards the end of Jehoiakim's reign and the beginning of Jehoiachin's reign. So beginning in chapter 21, verse 1, the word came unto Jeremiah, uh, unto the Lord. And by, by the way, 
things that had led up to this, as I said a moment ago, uh, some 19 years now had passed between chapter 20. So we just wrapped up chapter 20, uh, the prophecy of the potter and the potter's field, the destruction of the potter's vessel uh, in chapter 20. Now 19 years has passed. So again, it's not chronological. This is uh, topical, though. Chapter 37 and 38, what led up to this, the city had been besieged just as um, uh, Jeremiah uh, had, uh, had prophesied. Um, there was rumor that Pharaoh Hophra was on the move, and Egypt was going to try to attack Babylon while they were now exposed around the city of Jerusalem. All this time, Jeremiah is preaching repentance on the inside. We will see as we go a little farther into the book of Jeremiah. They actually listen for a period of time and go through a superficial external act of repentance. Next thing you know, they look outside the walls and the Babylonians are gone. Well, they think, well, that worked out well. And they go right back into their evil ways. So it wasn't a genuine repentance. It was just, Lord, save me from this terrible situation. Then as soon as they weren't in the terrible situation, they went right back to their old behavior. But what had happened is the Babylonians had heard about the advance by the Egyptians. They left went, dealt with that situation, and then came back. While the Babylonians were gone, Jeremiah said, enough of this, I'm going home. And he was from the city of Anathoth, just a, a, what we would now consider a suburb of Jerusalem, but just within two miles north, northeast of the city. And as you see circled there, the Benjamin Gate on the northern side of the city. Why is that called the Benjamin Gate? Because he, you would exit that gate to get to the tribe of Benjamin. The city of Jerusalem is set literally right on the border of Benjamin to the north and Judah to the south. So as he was going out the Benjamin gate, he was arrested and uh, he was thrown into the dungeon. So that is the background of where we are in verse 1. The word came unto Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent unto him Pasher, the son of Melchiah. And this is not the same Pasher as it's on chapter 20, just like Today, we've got a lot of people named Paul or a lot of people named Joshua or whatever. Uh, this is either a common Jewish name or possibly even a title, just like Pharaoh was a name and a title, just like Caesar was a name and a title. So this is a different Pasher than who we saw last week. But these two men, Pasher and Zephaniah, uh, a, a part of the uh, temple guard and a part of the priesthood, came, were sent by King Zedekiah to ask uh, Jeremiah if God was going to intervene. Verse 2, Inquire, I pray thee, of the Lord for us, Jeremiah. For Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, makes war against us. They've surrounded the city. They've cut us off. Ask if God will, in fact, spare us. You know, remember, God's done many marvelous, miraculous, wondrous works. Is He going to do that again? Of course, you remember about 120 years prior to this, when the city was surrounded by the Assyrians and Hezekiah was on the throne and they'd gotten these letters of surrender and quite frankly, insult of God. And God, or Jeremiah, uh, try again, Hezekiah took him in and laid them before the, the Holy of Holies and said, God, these people are insulting you and your reputation. What are you going to do about it? And of course, you remember, if you're ever worried about anything, remember that God dispatched one angel that night. So while Hezekiah was greatly worried as the city was surrounded by Assyrians, which was the dominant world power at the time, God dispatched one angel and likely killed every other man as they were camped around the city. Uh, that was a system of intimidation and fear that would be used to, to uh, petrify the hearts of the enemy. Nevertheless, we know that 185,000 Assyrians, as the KJV says, woke up dead the next day. Well, ask Jeremiah if God is going to do something similar. Is God going to go to war on our behalf? Well, not so much. Verse 3, Jeremiah said unto them, Thus shall you tell King Zedekiah, This is what God says. Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war, not that are in the Babylonians' hands, but that are in your hands, wherewith you fight against the king of Babylon against the Chaldeans, which besiege you outside the walls. And I will assemble them into the midst of the city. So this is not a good thing. And I myself will fight against you. You think you've got problems 
fighting against the Babylonians and the Babylonian army and King Nebuchadnezzar, you're actually not fighting them. You're dealing with me and with my outstretched hand and with my strong arm, even in my anger, in my fury, in my great wrath. We are not going to stop tonight, but let me just make this observation in passing. There are those that are, quite frankly, very similar to us in our theology that believe in what they call a mid-trib, or in some cases, more specifically, a pre-wrath rapture of the church. And by this, they say that the rapture won't take place at the beginning of the seven years of tribulation, but will take place somewhere in the middle after the halfway point before God pours out His wrath on the planet. And they will specify and say, well, the first half of the, of, the, of the tribulation is actually man's wrath poured out on one another. And sometimes even Satan's wrath, not God's wrath, as if God's wrath was limited to fire from heaven or 100-pound hailstones. Not true. As you see right here, who is actually holding the sword that is coming and slaughtering the Jews? Is it an angel of the Lord? Babylonians, exactly right. Whose fury, whose wrath is being poured out upon them? The Babylonians? No, it's actually God's wrath. So just because it's not fire from heaven or a hundred pound hailstone, just because it doesn't appear to be a miracle, uh, the every firstborn of the household dead, just because it doesn't appear to be supernatural does not mean that it is not in fact God's wrath. And I will smite the inhabitants of this city, both man and beast, and they shall die with a great pestilence. And afterwards, saith the Lord, I will deliver you, King Zedekiah, and your servants, and the people, as many as are left alive in the city after the pestilence, after the sword, after the famine. And I'm going to deliver you, verse 7 says, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of your enemies, and into the hand of those that seek your lives. And I will smite you with the edge of the sword. And he will not spare you, neither have pity on you, nor have mercy. Verse 8 through 10. And unto this people thou shalt say, Jeremiah again telling these two messengers to go back and tell the Jews and King Zedekiah. This is what the Lord says. Behold, I've given you a choice. Anybody ever remember watching, what was the, uh, what was the old, uh, with um, um, truth or consequences? Is that what it was? You got to select which box? Is that what it was? No. What was, what was the old daytime show? where you got to select, let's make a deal. Thank you. Sometimes the old noggin just doesn't click. Yeah, let's make a deal. You've got two choices, behind door number one and behind door number two. All right, you've got two options, the way of life, if you want to live, or a way of certain death. Whoever abides in this city is either going to die by the sword or by the famine or by the pestilence, as you can imagine, the dead bodies and the plague and everything. But he that goeth out of the city and falls into the hands of the Chaldeans that are besieging you, he shall live. Now, he's not going to be free. You're going to be a slave. You're going to be taken back to Babylon. However, you will have your life as ransom. For I have set my face against this city because of the evil that it's done. And I'm going to bring evil upon this city, not good, saith the Lord. And it shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon. And he is, in fact, going to burn this city with fire. And concerning the house of the king of Judah... Say this unto the kings, hear the word of the Lord. O house of David, again, this is you kings, the royal line, thus saith the Lord. Here's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to rule righteously. Here's what I've called you to do as political leaders of my people. Execute judgment beginning first thing in the morning and all day. Deliver him that is being taken advantage of out of the hands of the oppressor. If you don't do this, my fury is going to be poured out upon you like fire. I'm going to burn, and burn none that can quench it. Why am I doing this? Because of your evil doings. Behold, I'm against you, O inhabitant of the valley, O rock of the plain, idioms for Jerusalem. You've seen how it sits on Mount Moriah between the Kidron and the central valley, which say, who shall come down against us? You remember last week we looked at a, a, some pictures of the city. And why a, a besieging army would, in fact, just set up camp and starve you out rather than attacking the city on day one. You go up the steep slope from the bottom of the Kidron Valley, up the slopes of Mount Moriah, and then at the top of that, you up to the walls of the city of Jerusalem. That's a, an effort right there. 
there's going to be a substantial loss of life. And as a consequence, the Jews felt like they were safe. Of course, you remember when David took the city to begin with, when it was a Jebusite city, they were mocking the Jews. They felt like they were safe, but they weren't. Um, Who shall enter into our habitations? The end of verse 13. God says, I'm going to punish you according to what you've done. I'm going to kindle a fire in the forest of, and it shall devour all things round about it. Folks, notice what God's intent is for biblical civil government. Verse 12. It's not to have a 19 or or $1.9 million bailout and then only give 9% of it to the people for whom you're supposed to be raising the money. That is unjust use of civil government. God's intent for civil government is for absolute justice, righteousness, uh, equality in the eyes of the law, no favoritism for the poor or for the, or for the rich, uh, no favoritism based, based upon race or gender, but because we are all created in the image of God, all men are created equal and are endowed with certain unalienable rights. You look at every passage in Scripture. For example, Romans 13. God again states that He is who designed this whole system, this whole realm, and I would say of four powers. Chapter 13, verse 1 is not speaking specifically of civil government. God designed higher powers and realms of government. They were all designed by God. Self-government, family government, church government, and then civil government. When it comes to civil government, those that have the power of the sword therefore can be the most deadly and oppressive and tyrannical. The rulers are not supposed to be a terror to good works, but they're supposed to terrorize those that do evil works. Those civil rulers are, in fact, God calls ministers of God given to you for good. If thou do that which is evil, then you've got cause to be afraid because he doesn't bear the sword of civil government in vain. He is, again, a minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. After Noah got off the ark, God gave man the authority of capital punishment. And you can understand that if God has given them that authority, then lesser authorities were also delegated to this realm of civil governments. Well, for what purpose? To punish evildoers. If a man committed murder then he owes his own life. Look in the Psalms. God is rebuking unjust political leadership. Verse 1, and by the way, I've got the complete Jewish version of the Bible here. Elohim, God, stands in the midst of the camp. Now, let me ask you, is God literally, visibly standing there where you can see him like the jolly green giant, standing in the midst of the camp, administering civil government? No, you read this verse in this passage, you understand that God is standing in the camp through those ministers of God to thee for good. Those just, supposedly, judges. And through those just judges, he judges, and he says this, he's rebuking them because they're not doing what he's called them to do. How long will you go on judging unfairly, favoring the wicked? We can ask that of the current administration. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the rights of the wretched and the poor. Rescue the destitute and needy. Deliver them from the power of the wicked. Paul writing to Timothy says the purpose of civil government is this, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Peter, writing to the dispersed Jews throughout Gentile lands, says the purpose of the civil governor is this. They're supposed to punish evildoers and to praise or protect those that do well. So we see clearly throughout Scripture, the role and responsibility of civil government is not to tyrannize, but they're supposed to be ministers of God to us to protect that which is good. Now, again, We just wrapped up chapter 21, which is a short chapter. We're going to segue into chapter 22, dealing with the same topic. However, this occurred about 10 years earlier. 
Remember chapter 21, God was rebuking or telling Zedekiah after Zedekiah had sent messengers to ask Jeremiah if God was going to be merciful and spare them. And you, of course, just heard the message that God took back. No, not so much. In fact, not only am I not going to fight for you, I am actually fighting against you because of your disobedience. Now, we're in chapter 22, and now we're dealing right at the tail end of Jehoiakim and his son, Jehoiachin, who is, um, they were probably co-regents for about half of this time. And his father, Jehoiakim, dying when Jehoiakim was age 18, and then Jehoiachin had a very brief singular reign after that. And I beg your pardon, if this is your first time here, I had throat cancer about two years ago. Sometimes I have difficulty talking, but you probably wouldn't notice it because I don't shorten the lessons at all. I just have more difficulty talking. Verse 1 of chapter 22, Thus saith the Lord, Go down to the house of the king of Judah and speak there this word. So God says, Jeremiah, and by the way, this is, remember, this is early on. This, and this guy, Jehoiakim, was an awful man. He was a terrible king, and his son was equally as terrible. You see, these kings in the green were pretty good kings, God-fearing kings. These in the reddish tent were pretty bad kings, wicked kings, no fear of God, idol worshipers. Yellow, you see, Zedekiah. Zedekiah was weak for probably a couple of reasons. One, he wasn't really the rightful heir to the throne. He was put there as the uncle of Jehoiachin, so he probably had some job insecurity. He also was surrounded with some bad counselors, and he was a weak leader. He actually had a lot of fondness for Jeremiah, but generally did the wrong thing as his cabinet talked him into doing the wrong thing, and generally that was a pretty easy conversation. So here we are at the end of Jehoiakim, before Jehoiachin. By the way, it's before um, this second siege, right? Well, can you see? Do I have the pointer up there? No, you can't see it. Anyway, well, anyway. All right. Thus saith the Lord. Jeremiah, I want you to go down to Jehoiakim's house. I want you to tell him this. Hear the word of the Lord, Jehoiakim. You sit on the throne of David. Remember King David? Man after my own heart, you and your servants and your people that enter in these gates, this message is for them too. Here's what I'm commanding you to do, king. Execute judgment and righteousness. And again, proper civil government. Folks, do you notice something here? You notice in Jeremiah, and the same thing is true with us. Notice Jesus rebuked the Pharisees time and again. He said, oh, you are meticulous and accumulating the proper amount of tithe from your, even your mint and cumin. But here's what I want from you. I want you to have mercy and to do justice. Here you take advantage of your parents. You don't take care of your parents. You, you rob widows' houses. You steal their houses. And then you hypocrites, you come to the, to the, to the uh, temple every day and call each other, Oh, great teacher. Oh, great teacher. I'm not impressed with how pretty you look when you go to church. I want to see your business ethics. I want to see how you love your wife, how you honor your husband, how you obey your parents, how you raise your kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, how you manage your finances. I want to see who really is the Lord of your life the other six days out of the week, actually the other 167 hours out of the week, other than that one hour you spend in church during praise and worship. All right, I want proper civil government is one of the things I want. By the way, the king in this kind of governmental system was supposed to be a husband to the widow. He was supposed to be a father to the fatherless. He was to make sure that every person was guaranteed their unalienable rights under the law. By the way, you'll also notice, and I've said almost weekly, there's no such thing as social justice. We all individually are supposed to have justice because we are all created in the image of God. The idea of group rights, because you're a woman or because you're black or because you're LGBT, is a Marxist strategy to divide and conquer. 
Marxism, all it is is pitting two groups against each other, hoping to fight, create a civil war, and out of that, throw off the old system and create a new one. Don't care what it was. Marx used to use the bourgeois versus the proletariat, the 1% of the business owners versus the 99% of the workers, so-called. Modern Marxism doesn't care. That, that hasn't worked in America and hasn't worked in most of Europe because most of us have it pretty good. In fact, most of us are property owners. Most of us own our own cars or our own houses or our own clothes and things. So that hasn't worked well. So they use critical theory causing arguments, division. Again, LGBT versus straight, white versus black, male versus female, whatever. It doesn't care what it is. And most recently, we're seeing critical theory morphed into critical race theory. That is the sweet spot for America. We're going to say that America is systematically racist for the sins that were carried on by this country 150 years ago. I got news for you, folks. Slavery started in the Bible. The first slave we meet is Joseph. The first slave people were the Jews. Slavery has always been around, whether it was one Indian tribe conquering and enslaving another Indian tribe, or whether it was the Muslims conquering and enslaving the North Africans, or the Egyptians, or whether it be one African tribe conquering and enslaving another African tribe. It's always been around. It's always been wrong. Again, biblically, we can enslave ourselves. We do so all the time when we go into debt. If you take out a 30-year mortgage, guess what? When you sign your name, you've just enslaved yourself to repay that debt. But you are agreeing to do so. But the Bible is very clear. You cannot steal a man and steal his labor. We're going to see that very thing happen here in verse 3. That is absolutely a violation. But anyway, we are being held to account for the sins of the whole world 150 years ago. By the way, did you know that there are more slaves on planet Earth today than there ever has been in human history? 47 million, by some estimates, slaves on planet Earth today. Do you know that of the top 10 enslaved nations, five of them are on the continent of Africa? So it really isn't about black lives. Otherwise, they'd be trying to do something there with those nations. It's about destroying America. And that's what the whole Black Lives Matter system is. In fact, the founders were Marxists. But anyway, the whole idea of social justice, group rights, that's just Marxism. Every time you hear that, and by the way, that's what's being taught to our kids in school. They're not taught to read and write anymore, but they're taught social justice. God help us. All right, what was I talking about? Were we about to dismiss? I thought so. All right. Verse 3, thus saith the Lord, here's what I want you to do. Execute judgment and righteousness. Deliver the spoiled out of the hand of the oppressor. And do no wrong, king. Do no violence to the stranger. By the way, if you are an immigrant... You are subject to the laws of the land, just like everybody else. You aren't supposed to be taken advantage of, but you also don't have an extra advantage over the citizens. You are obligated to uphold the laws of the land. The orphans, the widows, neither sacrifice your children in the fires of Ashtaroth, Moloch, and Baal anymore. By the way, this king, Jehoiakim, Kim had done the same thing, and Jehoiachin had done the same thing. They'd fallen right back into the sins of Manasseh. And if you do this thing, God's offering them an opportunity. Of course, they don't take it. If you do this, then as long as you go, there will be kings that come in and out the gates of the city. They'll live in peace, and the people will live in peace, and everything will be hunky-dory. But if you will not do these thirds, verse 5, then I swear by myself. Why does God swear by himself? Because there's nobody higher that he can call to co-sign the loan than he himself. And that's what that term means. When you say, I swear by, my, if I was going to, well, well, that's what would happen. If I, if I didn't have a good enough credit rating and I went down to the bank to take out a loan, and they said, well, Mr. Blair, we're not going to loan you money, but if you'll get your brother to co-sign with you, then we will loan you money. Well, that's, I would be swearing by my brother's good name and credit rating. So God says, I swear by myself, there's nobody stronger that they can co-sign with me, so I am calling upon my own name. I promise you, God says, that this house shall become desolate, going to be destroyed, going to be empty. Verse 6, Thus saith the Lord unto the king's 
plural, of the house of Judah. Thou art Gilead unto me. You see over there on the right side of the screen, the area of Gilead. Uh, Thou and the head, you're better than Lebanon. What does that mean? Both of these were very fertile areas. You remember in Scripture, talks about the balm of Gilead, talks about the forests of Lebanon. Uh, These would be idioms for something that was very favorable, that come to mind and very favorable in God's mind. So when God says, I think of you like Gilead and Lebanon, that's a very positive, affirming statement. Yet surely I will make you a wilderness and cities which are no longer inhabited. And I am preparing invaders, destroyers, a conquering army to come against you. Everyone with weapons. They're going to cut down thy choice cedars and cast them into the fire. As you read in the Old Testament Scripture, you recognize that one of the signs of prosperity was the timbers of the forest of Lebanon from which they built the temple, they built the king's house, they built the, the affluent houses. Much of the city of Jerusalem would have been built with, built with these cedars. So this is referencing their being burned or destroyed. Many nations are going to pass by Jerusalem in the future and they're going to say, what on earth has happened to this people? Why on earth would they go worshiping pagan gods after their God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had blessed them so abundantly. Verse 19, And they shall answer, Because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God, and worship other gods, and serve them. Now, remember, this whole thing started. Nebuchadnezzar Babylon coming to power. They start pushing back the Assyrians. The Assyrians, which had been the predominant world power, fell back to Karshemish. At this point in time, Pharaoh Necho was making a power play. He was coming up to join the Assyrians and to try to fend off Nebuchadnezzar, or at this time, Nebuchadnezzar's father, Nebuchadnezzar, and fend off the Babylonians. As he got to this point, as you can see in the diagram, there is a pass that goes through this mountain range that separates the beaches of the Mediterranean Sea from the uh, Jordan River Valley. There's those mountains in the midst of Israel. There is a pass, as you can see up there, right by the ancient city of Megiddo. It was there that Necho was coming through the pass. It was there that King Josiah was coming up to stop him. And it was there that Josiah was killed in 609. So understand why that was significant. At that point, it was all hands off. I mean, up until that point, God said, I'm not going to touch Jerusalem. At that point... It was fair game. Jerusalem was subject to uh, being uh, punished. Immediately after Josiah, Jehoahaz, his son, actually was not in the proper line, but for some reason assumed the throne, took over for a period of about three months. But he did not last long. The Egyptians took control of Jerusalem to a certain degree, and Jerusalem would have been paying tribute to them if not for the subsequent conquering of Babylon. But Jehoahaz was taken captive after three months by the Egyptians, and he never saw Jerusalem again. They put his brother, the proper lineage, Jehoiakim, on the throne. Again, Jehoiakim was a bad guy. So with that in mind, let's read verse 10. Don't weep over King Josiah. He's dead. Uh, Don't weep over Jehoahaz. That's been taken away. He's not coming back. Verse 11. For thus saith the Lord concerning Shalom, another name for Jehoiakim, a Hebraic name for Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, which reigned instead of Josiah, his father, which went forth out of this place. I'm sorry, Shalom was another name for Jehoahaz. He will not return anymore. He's not coming back. But he shall die in the place whither they have led him captive. Woe unto him. Now, here's the reason. Here's why all of this is going on. This is what was wrong with Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, and Jehoiachin. Woe unto him, doom unto him, judgment unto him, that builds his wealth, his fortune, his house, by unrighteousness, by wrong, that uses slave labor. Thus, that says, I will build me a big house with big rooms and lots of windows 
and cedar paneling. And since I'm royalty, I'm going to paint it red. What an ugly color. Everybody knows that orange is God's chosen color. It's the color associated with long-suffering. Shalt thou reign? That a big house does not make you a good king. Didn't your father, Josiah... By the way, if you're the first time here, you've got the actual Scripture on the screen which you can read. I'm giving you Paul's uninspired version. Your father reigned. He was a great king, and he did it the right way. If you would do it that way, it would be well with you. He took care of the poor and the needy, verse 16. And it went well for him. Aren't you aware of all this, God says? By the way, verse 17, But thine eyes, Jehoiakim, and thine heart, you are full of covetousness. You are a greedy man. And to shed innocent blood. The blood of innocence is the sacrifice of children primarily. It also be injustice in court. And for oppression... And for violence to do it. I highlighted violence because it means more than what you think it means. It is not just a physical assault or attack. You notice, you see on the screen, the New International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. Violence also means to violate the rights of others by stealing from them or oppressing from them or robbing them. That also, as you notice on the definitions, even in the Strong's Concordance, references unjust gain. Just gain is fine, wonderful, encouraged. Theft, uh, unjust gain, deceitful weights and measures is not fine. Verse 18, Therefore thus saith the Lord God concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, don't lament for him. Remember, he ruled for 11 years. He was a terrible king. He was a wicked king. He oppressed his, his subjects. In fact, they're not supposed to be subject. They're supposed to be uh, the, the sheep of his fold. But he treated them as subjects and him as an absolute tyrant. Don't say, oh, poor brother Jehoiakim. Uh, don't lament for him. He shall be buried with the burial of a donkey. <laughs> He's going to be drawn outside and just thrown outside the gates of the city of Jerusalem. Go up to Lebanon and cry with them. Go to Bashan. You can see where Bashan is. And cry with them. All of your lovers, referencing idol-worshiping Gentiles whom you have allied yourself with, they're all destroyed. I spake unto you, Israel, when you were prosperous and on top of the world, but you refused to listen. This has been your way all, of, all the way back. Remember when God brought them out of bondage in Egypt. They were three days outside of captivity, three days crossing the Red Sea when they were complaining about God's inability to provide for them. They were only some 50 days from the Red Sea when while Moses was up on the mount, they were building a golden calf and worshiping idols again. He said, you've been this way from the beginning. The wind, a dry east wind, is going to gobble you up. You shepherds, that being not only the spiritual leaders, but their political leaders, and thy lovers, meaning your allies, all going to go into captivity. Surely at that point in time, you're going to be ashamed. You're going to be confounded, puzzled, because of all, humbled because of all your wickedness. O inhabitant of Lebanon. Again, that the nest of cedars is a reference to the use of the, uh, Lebans, uh, the, the cedars of Lebanon in the construction of the buildings in Jerusalem. The nest of cedars, how gracious shalt thou be when pangs come upon thee, the pain as a woman in travail. That's a common idiom that God uses for judgment upon Israel. Jesus uses the same uh, idiom in the Olivet Discourse. Again, we are almost done. In fact, we're going to be done in plenty of time on time. We are coming in for a landing. John Lash. We've got 10 minutes. Coming in for a landing here. <laughs> All right. Remember these corrupt kings. You had good King Josiah, 30 years. Great king. 
stamp-type idolatry, had a tender heart for the Lord, refurbished the temple, discovered the law, read, read it, read his clothes because of their disobedience, truly was a man of God. After his death, remember he died going and trying to do battle and stop Pharaoh Necho. At that point, God says, Israel or Judah, you're fair game. Jehoahaz was on the throne for three months. Then he was taken captive by the Egyptians. The Egyptians put his uncle on the throne, and Uncle Jehoiakim ruled for 11 years. Eight of that under Babylonian rule, all of it, they were paying tribute or subject to a political ally that was, in fact, their superior. Jehoiakim, for a period of time, as you read in 2 Kings, probably for a period of, of eight years, was co-regent with his son, Jehoiachin, from age 10 through 18. He mentored his son to be just as evil and wicked as he was, if not more so, as you're going to see God pronounces a severe judgment on Jehoiachin, and he only was the absolute singular ruler for three months. First surrender, when Daniel was taken captive, only there was no destruction of the city, was during this period of time. Jehoiachin here, three months. Jehoiakim had stopped paying tribute to Babylon. Jehoiachin had continued the practice. The Babylonians were aligning to bring them back under control. This was the second conquest of Jerusalem, again without incident. No destruction, no death. At this point in time, Ezekiel, along with Jehoiachin, also known as Jeconiah, also known as Coniah, three different names in Scripture, the same man, taken back captive to Babylon. Uncle Zedekiah was put on the throne for the next 11 years. And of course, at this point in time, after the end of this, all of this time, Jeremiah ministering, at the end of that 11 years, Zedekiah has his eyes put out. The last thing he sees before he is blinded is the murder of his sons. And he lives out the remainder of his days as a slave in Babylon. But at this point in time, the city is destroyed and the temple burned. All right. Leading up to that, verse 24. As I live, saith the Lord, unto Kaniah, same man as Jehoiakim up here on the screen the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, even if you were the signet ring on the pinky of my right hand, I would take you off and throw you away. I will give you under the hand of them that seek your life, that being the Babylonians, and into the hand of them whose face thou fearest, even under the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, another pronunciation of the same man that we know as Nebuchadnezzar, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. And I will cast thee out, not only you, but your mother, the wife of Jehoiachin, who also ruled with you during that three-month period of time. You're going to both be taken into another country where you weren't born, and you're going to die there. And to this land, to the land of Judah, you will never, ever return. Is this Kaniah, Jeconiah, Jehoiachin, the same man? Jeconiah, don't you know that you are a despised, broken vessel? And you remember the last chapters, God talks about a vessel that once it couldn't be used for good, just shattered and destroyed. Jeconiah, don't you realize that you are one wicked vessel? A vessel wherein I have found no pleasure. Now listen closely. We're going to wrap this up quickly, but this is so important. Wherefore, you are cast out, Jeconiah. You and your seed are cast into a land which you don't know. God calls the entirety of the earth to witness. And remember, at the presence of two or three witnesses, let something be established. So God is establishing this promise by calling the entire earth to bear witness three times. Hear what I'm about to say. Thus saith the Lord, write this man, Jeconiah, childless. Now, he actually had seven children, but the point is, your seed will not rule and reign on the throne of David. 
a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. When you say, Pastor, what is the big stinking deal? Well, this is what the deal is. God had promised David that his seed would forever reign on his throne. As a matter of fact, that Christmas passage that we know so well on many Christmas cards, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 says this, For unto us a child is born, emphasizing his humanity. Unto us a son is given, emphasizing his deity. And the government shall rest upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase, the length, the expansion, the duration of his government and peace, shalom, that's more than just absence of war, that is complete contentness. Contentness? Better than contention? Yeah, okay, I'll go with it. There shall be no end. And upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. God says, Jehovah Sabbath, the Lord of hosts, will perform this. So it's kind of important. The seed of David is going to rule and reign forever. Had one commentator that I enjoy studying makes the observation when Satan and the demons heard God make this promise to Jeremiah, they must have been high-fiving because they thought God forgot about the promise that he made to David. God just boxed himself into a corner. Because God promised David, your seed will forever rule on the throne. And God, in a fit of anger, told Jeconiah, your seed will never rule on the throne. Boy, God has done it to himself. Well, not so much. The emphasis being no man of his seed. And remember in Genesis 3.15, the first messianic prophet said that the seed of the woman. Now, genetically, biologically, the seed normally passes from the man. But in Genesis 3.15, we see the first reference to a virgin birth. Isaiah 7.14, we'll see another one. But here's where we're going to go real quickly. As we're still circling the field, we will be out on time. John Lash, I want you to know, hates me. Okay, very good. You know, you, are probably, you will be the most famous person across America, people that follow us. They don't have the slightest idea who John Lash is. But boy, you are infamous in our Bible study. <laughs> Introduce you, exactly, yeah. Isaiah 11, we'll be very quick. We see another reference of the Messiah. He's called the branch. We notice in verse 1. And as you go through Scripture, you see that there are four characteristics or attributes, very specific, all about the Messiah called the branch. First of all, we know that the Messiah will be the king of the Jews. We will see next week in Wednesday night study. Jeremiah 23, 5 says this, I will raise unto David, again the lineage of David, a righteous branch. Notice it's capitalized because it's a person, a king shall reign and prosper. Matthew approaches Jesus, giving testimony, proving that Jesus is the King of the Jews. And in Matthew 1, you read the lineage of Jesus, which we'll come back to here in just a moment as we wrap things up. We see the lineage of Jesus through his father, actually technically his lawful father, father-in-law, his adoptive father, Joseph. Through Joseph, the lineage of Joseph, he actually has a rightful claim to the throne. He is the king of the Jews. In Mark, he is the suffering servant. Zechariah 3.8 says, I will bring forth my servant, the branch, all caps. There's no lineage given in Mark because no one cares what the lineage of a slave is. In Luke, 
we see Jesus presented by Dr. Luke as a human being, the Son of Man. And of course, it's in Luke 2 that we see his birth in detail. It's in Luke 2 we see the detail of his virgin birth as Mary is visited by the angel Gabriel. In Luke 2, we see the only uh, peak at Jesus as a teen before he begins his ministry. Zechariah 6 says this, Behold the man whose name is the branch. And in Luke, we see his lineage given as of the house and lineage of David, this time not the house of David with the rightful claim to the throne through Joseph, his father according to the law, but through his mother, his birth mother, Mary, who also goes all the way back to David, but through a different branch from David. She is a descendant of David's son, Nathan. And then um, uh, uh, Joseph is a descendant from David's son, Solomon. Then, of course, John, we see Isaiah 4.2 says, the branch of the Lord. And we see John presents Jesus as the Son of God. Now, as you look at those lineages that I just described, you see in Luke, the lineage proves that he is a human being. And it takes Jesus through Mary, his birth mother, natural mother, through Nathan, through David, through Abraham, all the way back to Adam. Why is that important? Because Jews were very specific and meticulous in proving their lineage and birth and rightful claims. Well, Jesus obviously could be traced all the way back to Adam, the original man. In Luke, I'm sorry, in Luke, he was traced all the way back to Adam, the original man. In Matthew, he is traced all the way back to Abraham, stopping there because in Matthew, he is presented as the king of the Jews. And all that mattered was Jesus' Hebraic roots, and Abraham was the first Jew. So they stopped there with Abraham. But through that lineage comes down through David and then splits through Solomon and comes all the way down, you can see on your far right, ending in Joseph, that being Jesus' legal father as actually a legitimate heir to the throne of David. Isaiah 7.14 reminds us, in case anybody's forgotten, therefore the Lord Himself, by the way, this sign was given to the kings of Judah, an evil king, uh, one sign, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name God with us. Why is that so important? Because God had promised David that his seed would forever rule and reign on the throne of David. He would be of the house of David, the royal line, and also of the lineage of David, the bloodline, or genetically. Well, God had pronounced this curse on Jeconiah. And Jeconiah was told that no man of your seed shall sit on the throne. There's only one way that God could keep His promise. And that was through a virgin birth. And you know what? God did, in fact, keep His promise through that virgin birth. Isn't it amazing the more you study Scripture, the more completely literal and specific it is, the deeper you dig into it. 